Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. Hello again, Transform MFL. Nice to see you. Hi there. Nice to be back. Thank you. So in our first part of our podcast, we were talking about the policies behind the language curriculum, uh, GCSE and A-level modern foreign languages, and the trajectory, I suppose, of where they've been going over the last 30 years, and whether they're reflected and updated to meet the needs of our changing world, which is, you know, becoming more super diverse as we go. We've got something like 364 languages spoken by children in primary schools, and, you know, we're just not in the same place we were in 1987 and the 90s. And one of the things I've heard teenagers saying, um, I've had a couple of work experience students with me recently, they've said that they find GCSE languages are harder to get a good grade in than other subjects and that actually their friends thought they were, you know, taking a risk by choosing to do GCSE Spanish and A-level Spanish. So is this true? Are GCSE languages actually marked unfairly? Uh it's, it's a crucial question, and I think it's um, uh, it's certainly one which has been very prominent in uh, in uh, discourse among practi- uh, practitioners and policymakers uh, in the MFL field over recent years. I think it's probably true that learning a language is rarely easy um, ever anywhere in the world. Um, it becomes easier, of course, if you're constantly confronted with it in everyday life, which in some countries is the case. Um, but the answer to your question, are they marked unfairly? I think. To be honest, it depends who you ask. Certainly many teachers and to an extent the Association of Language Learning would say, yes, there is such a thing called um, severe grading. Ofqual, though, um, in uh, one of its recent reports was essentially not convinced. It said there were other reasons um, why students were getting uh, lower grades in um, modern foreign languages, and that could be to do with their motivation. It could be to do with teaching and learning. Um, there's also um, the reality of how GCSE grades are awarded, which is um, a system called index referencing, which was introduced by um, the government to combat what they um, perceive to be grade inflation. So essentially what this means is there are a set number of grade sevens, eights and nines, etc., available each year. So the argument is perhaps about are there enough of those grades available um, for each cohort? And I do think we also have to be careful about what we mean by subjects being hard or subjects being severely graded, because we tend to conflate some of that language and they actually mean different things. It's one thing to say that the exams themselves are too difficult. Perhaps they're at an unrealistic level. Uh, Perhaps the requirements of the exams are labyrinthine and complex and unrealistic. That's one thing. It's another thing to say that there are not enough top grades available for the cohort of students sitting the exam. It's another thing to say that the marking of the exams themselves is particularly mean or miserly. And it's another thing, again, to say that students appear to do well, uh, less well, sorry, in uh, modern languages than in other subjects. So I think there's all sorts of things going on. And I think it's probably all true to an extent. And, And it is certainly true that students don't do as well in modern languages compared to other subjects. We can't deny that. What we don't really have full confidence on is why um, and whether that's inevitable or not. Um, I don't tend to talk about grading that much though to be honest because A of course grading should be fair that shouldn't really be up for debate but the reason that I tend not to to go too far down that road is I don't think it's the solution to the problem that we've got. I think that you could 
make the subject a little bit easier or or tweak grading here and there and it wouldn't have a huge impact on the number of students choosing to learn a language uh, in this country. Arguably actually uh, making the subject easier could backfire insofar as head teachers might say oh well um, French has got easier so you don't need that extra lesson in year seven we can take that off you because you'll be fine without it and I'm very wary of um, if you go back to my restaurant analogy to anyone who's listened to the first um, podcast that we did I'm, I'm, I'm wary of making it cheaper if the menu still isn't good and the dishes still aren't tasty and it's still not convincing customers to walk through the door just lowering the price by 50p isn't going to make my business successful I need to go back to think what am I offering in the first place Yes, I think I really with you on that. I don't think it's the price that's necessarily the problem. It is the offering itself. And so if you are sceptical as well that changing grading would revive MFL, and I say revive because it really does seem to be dying out in the same way that I remember Latin dying out when I was about 12, in that the um, Latin teacher at my middle school, he retired and then never got replaced. So I just missed out on being able to do any Latin. Um, if if changing the grading is not going to revive MFL, then in what ways can we or should we change things um, in the exams to give students a better deal, if you like, in this restaurant? And this is for me where the conversation gets really exciting and really creative. And that's why I'm kind of hooked on this issue of transforming MFL, because it gives us the opportunity actually to stop and think, hold on, why are we doing this? How does MFL earn its place in the timetable in a universal curriculum? And how can we actually bring what we do into line with a successful practice that we can see evident in other jurisdictions? It gives us an opportunity to be really kind of ambitious for the subject and create a new menu, if you like, of a subject which balances communicative skills, linguistic skills and cultural learning. And, and it gives us an opportunity to resituate our language learning in the imaginations of uh, and the realities of the, the cultures of the target language and I think that's great not only because it inevitably will be a more engaging and more interesting classroom experience but crucially it will all also become fairer um, insofar as if we are uh, you know for example if we take the holidays question I don't like those you know those topics about things like holidays because it's not fair if you haven't been on a holiday I don't like that question about the hometown describe your hometown well, there's no point describing my hometown in England in French because it's in England, so I might as well talk about it in English. But if I'm studying content which is in somehow situated in the target language imagination or culture, which is content which I've studied in the classroom, then everyone gets fair access to that. And we lose um, this phenomenon which has been recently evidenced in a survey by the National Association of Language Advisors that the current curriculum in its kind of cultural neutrality or sterility actually just alienates um, lots and lots of learners. So I had some examples of the kind of things we might um, do um, to, to, um, to kind of, if you like, balance um, the curriculum and enrich it or, or situate it um, culturally. And I suppose one thing that we might bear in mind is that I suppose a culturally situated curriculum might mean two things. It might mean that we still have the same expectations and there's still the same kind of output or examination tasks, but that we get there through a more culturally meaningful and culturally situated route. Or it could mean that actually we change the goalposts themselves and actually um, more explicitly um, in our assessments look to um, look for students to achieve different things and to demonstrate that achievement of kind of cultural learning.
so there are various kind of if you like that might be a spectrum of how far down that road um, we might go um, so you know as I say if we're talking about um, towns and cities and you know that age-old question of advantages and disadvantages of living in the town or the countryside which seems to be a favorite of the GCSE curriculum since it ever existed it ever came into existence we might as well be studying places and people in target language and culture um, at the very least though what we can do in our exams instead of saying okay just tell me about the last holiday you went on which is what we had in the French exam in 2018 we at least should give students some stimulus perhaps a, a structure or some images so that they're not having to imagine what that holiday would have been like if they didn't in fact go on one and I know of course we can just train them to make it up but then the whole thing becomes a bit pointless and, and highly contrived so I'm not in favour of that um, we might also um, balance out uh, the curriculum and make it more accessible more enriching through linguistics and learning about language that might be sociolinguistics and how for example different people within a society use a language differently or an afforded different um, status accordingly and, and whether that's a good or a bad thing or why that might be a damaging thing we can look at linguistic diversity uh, dialects accents um, registers um, different approaches to grammar we can look at language history history and etymology uh, there'll be some who say that um, then we're learning about language at the expense of learning language that's a totally valid point but you know for me if it helps us democratize language learning and make it accessible and exciting for all then i think it's for me a sacrifice i'd be willing to make and of course we can then do things to learn the culture itself we might think it's actually okay to study excerpts from films or from texts and to look at them critically to look at them analytically to engage in creative translation critical translation to do some of that kind of cultural mediation work that i really enjoyed um uh, listening to a podcast with uh, Charlotte Ryland uh, and, and, and how, how much of a kind of va value adding activity that can be. So that could also be part of the curriculum. I think there's some really, really interesting suggestions there. I am just thinking about unpacking a couple, actually. So the alienation, I think, of children from those sort of holiday questions. You know, I mean, this is something that I find this it's tricky to talk about because it's quite emotive. I taught in some schools where the children, you know, are incredibly disadvantaged financially and culturally because they couldn't afford to get the bus into the centre of Glasgow to go to a museum or to see their own hometown. Um, so it's very difficult for them to take an imaginative leap to go on holiday and talk about, you know, a holiday they went on in a language they don't speak yet. I think it was just really unfair. And actually, I spent quite a lot of time helping them with the creative writing process, never mind with the actual language. So I think you just said something about would we be disadvantaging how or d reducing how much actual target language they learned. But another point is that how much are they actually learning? You know, if we does that make sense like we kind of absolutely you know are they actually learning very much in the first place i mean that might be hugely controversial and make teachers very cross because i know that you know we're all you know teaching absolutely the best that we can and doing the most that we can but i just feel like it's so restrictive i ended up teaching uh, je m'appelle j'habite à glasgow en Ecosse, and i think 
that was about as much as some of the kids ever learned and you know some of the kids I was teaching as well they had you know learning uh, support needs they were very very dyslexic some of them we couldn't do reading and writing and we did a lot of word pegging you know and we did all sorts of things so they actually could associate you know certain gestures or parts of their body with you know French phrases and they had literally kind of physically memorized those phrases because they couldn't write them down and in the end it just became you know more of a cultural activity I was trying to teach them about France and they were really interested in the fact that there was me now I was you know I am English I'm from you know the Midlands and there I was in the middle of Glasgow I didn't sound Scottish but I also knew about this like magical land called France <laughs> and I just moved back from Paris so I was full of stories of Paris and you know it was really it was really great we had some conversations the conversations took place in English but we were talking about France and maybe there was a glimmer of them just seeing this magical kind of place. Does that, does that sound like something that we, you know, we could be entering into a bit more of when do, when do the modern languages teachers get to talk about their experiences abroad and how are we helping these children take these imaginative leaps into, into unknown places? And I think it's not unfair to say that for many children it is a really big imaginative leap. What do you think? I think that's, that's absolutely right. I think particularly I teach German as one of my languages and um, German uh, has additional challenges in the curriculum because um, it doesn't really suit this kind of touristic functional curriculum. It's not a place that most 11 year olds have been when they arrive in year seven. It's not a place they can imagine immediately going on their summer holiday with their family if indeed they're one of the lucky ones who does go on an annual holiday. Um, and and perceptions of Germany, as we know from various studies, tend to be pretty negative, peddled through um, certain stereotypes in the media. So it is a bit of a bizarre proposition to them. Why the hell am I learning German? So a crucial thing that I've got to do as a language teacher is enamour them with Germanness and get mm. them attached to the idea of German speakers being a bunch of people who've got something interesting to say and who I'd like to get a little bit closer to. And the best way to do that is through the German language and seeing the world um, through their eyes. So for me, the language curriculum has to afford space for developing that intrinsic motivation so that, it, and, and some of the scholars talk about the, the L2 ideal self, the, the kind of, the, the, the person that the student realizes they want to be because of their exposure to the language. And that has to come through a kind of culturally enriched uh, uh, curriculum. And it, it's interesting, German has almost disappeared in many schools, it has disappeared in many schools. Meanwhile, the appetite for Germanness in the curriculum is booming in economics, learning Hayek and Marx, in politics and in history, learning German history, in uh, drama, learning about Brecht. And uh, you know, all across the curriculum, actually, students are obsessed with learning about Germany just not in German. And that's a bit of a shame. A, because it can be so much more interesting and B, because I do think it makes it fairer. Why on earth we're asking students to describe their hometown in England in German is weird to me. That's not a, that's not a natural, authentic linguistic proposition. Why on earth I would write a postcard from Germany to England in German, which is kind of thing you get in exams, is again, really bizarre. And I think actually there's an opportunity there to let's say I don't know take a film for example I used the film Amtouchable with my uh, year 10 French recently and I used that film to talk about characters and to talk about urban environments that film gives really rich characters quite subjective characters and it gives um, uh, it begins to give students a sense of the different 
types of place, different types of community that exist in France. And it also enabled us to have a conversation about whether those representations were fair or constructive in the context of Black Lives Matter and um, unconscious bias. Uh, and that was a really rich platform for learning. And so it didn't matter that my students, I wasn't asking them to describe you know, Stoke-on-Trent or Stockport or wherever it is that they live uh, in French. I was asking them to describe a place in France, which we had experienced together in the classroom. Everyone was able to participate in that activity. Uh, and, it, and it led to really interesting kind of sub-questions about, well, is it really like that? What's it like? How, how is the language being used differently? Why is that person talking differently? It was, it was, it was a great, uh, great thing to do. And there's no reason that can't be, uh, part, for me, part of a, uh, of a formal qualification. And also you've got the opportunity there to compare their experience of where they live to the, you know, the place they've seen in the film. It gives them, you know, a bit of a, you know, a new opening, a new perspective, um, and yeah, I think that's really interesting. Like, why would you want to spend your time describing your, you know, housing estate or, you know, your flat or, you know, your house or your garden or your dog? I don't know that it's exactly. that. It's, it's not that um, creative, I suppose. I mean, I, you know, I'm, tr I'm sort of racking my mind here trying to remember when I got asked to do anything that creative in languages. I, I think it's actually quite funny because I am a real Francophone and a Francophile. I love France. And I, you know, what I really embraced was when we did exchanges with our school and I had some, um, I think it was in my first year of A-level, we had people come over to stay and, you know, I brought them into school and, you know, they sat a French test on the same day as me. And I actually scored higher in this French test than my French pen friend did because it was, you know, in the present tense and I'd, you know, conjugated everything just exactly as the exam required. But he had used je suis en train de faire and that was not required by this test. So he only got 70% and I got 96%. And it was really funny because like a, an actual French person hadn't managed to pass this little classroom test. And we were joking about that and how, you know, it was, you know, I was even more French than the French person. And Actually, you know, at the time, I just, I absorbed everything French. And, you know, when I went to live in Paris, I just, you know, I wanted to become French. That was my, that was basically my dream. And the best thing that ever happened to me was being in Printemps, the, like the shop, and the store assistant refused to believe that I was English when I paid for the item with an English bank card. They couldn't understand how I could possibly have needed an English bank card if I was French. And that was the proudest moment of my life. I'm not saying my French has ever kind of like stayed up at that level. But so speaking wasn't kind of part of, you know, it was really part of like my identity of who I was. I'd really identified something French in it, you know, and I just wanted to be like kind of expand that Frenchness. And I don't really see how that had much to do with our curriculum. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It, it, Absolutely. it, was, it was something really personal to me and I got, I got it from outside school. Obviously, I got some of the skills from our curriculum and, you know, um, that sort of thing. But, you know, I've, it was very much about like real life experiences and films that we watched. And, you know, I, it, I had a brilliant teacher who was a French and German teacher um, who just really brought you know, personal experience into the classroom and showed me why that might become something I would also like to do, to imagine myself in a different place and in a different language. Um, and I, I can see how a lot of what you're saying actually might help children to imagine themselves in a French way, rather than, you've said this to me before, we've not said it on the podcast yet, but it's like we're teaching 
English with French words in it. If can you expand right. on absolutely. that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, um, you, what, what you're referring to there is, I think, the way in which language and identity or language and culture are not different. They're not in competition with each other. They are the same. They go hand in hand and they require each other. Um, unless we teach language through culture or through relation to kind of the people who speak it, we might as well be teaching them Esperanto or Dothraki from Game of Thrones. Um, and uh, learning kind of language in a, in a kind of sterile way which just enables me to say something which the exam is requiring me to say that amounts to what I refer to as English with French words in it I'm not saying this in, in a way which is at all resonant with the French speaking words and uh, world sorry one of the things I challenged myself to do recently and it's on my blog is to think of um, words relating to the GCSE criteria, uh, topics and criteria which are inherently and only situated um, in those individual languages of French and German being the languages that I teach and thinking wouldn't it be so nice if when I asked them that you know that dreaded question what did you have for dinner last night that they came up with a, an answer which showed them their francophilia if you like or the way that they'd really learned more about more in my lessons than just being able to say I ate a pizza which is you know not hugely um, reflective of all the different things we could have we could have learned about. I think uh, there, there was a um, there was a scholar in the 1980s, a guy called Williams. I don't know his first name, uh, but he uh, he wrote in one of his kind of he had kind of ten commandments for language teaching or something, or maybe it was seven. I forget. The first one was without interest, very little is possible. If you've got a student who is not that interested in a German speaking world, not that interested in Germany or Austria or Switzerland has actually perhaps negative opinions about the Germans, which may relate to the war or football or, you know, um, business supremacy, whatever it might be, he kind of sees Germany as a, as a malignant force in the world, or certainly one uh, with which they want nothing to do, then it's going to be a bit of an unrealistic proposition to kind of teach that student German. It's going to be like pushing a train up a hill, essentially. I've got to invest in their passion for Germanness through my own enthusiasm uh, and teaching material which relates to Germanness, not just um, the German language. And it also gives everything a purpose. If I say, okay, we're gonna watch this, um, this film in German, or we're gonna look at this little uh, text for this poem, or we're gonna look at this painting or image, and it's all about the German speaking world and the German imagination, then using German to do so becomes self-evident in a way that using German to describe, um, I don't know, my, uh, my work experience that I did in North Manchester, there's, it's not self-evident why I should do that in German. I think I, I have that same moment. It was on my year abroad. I was sitting in a cafe um, somewhere in Schöneberg in, in Berlin and I was chit-chatting away and then it came up in the conversation that it turns out I wasn't German after all. And there was this kind of collective realisation around the table that I was a, a visiting student. And I still remember that feeling and it is incredibly, incredibly life-affirming. And I think that's where, um, as teachers, our enthusiasm for speaking comes we know just how amazing it is to have that feeling of being able to not just get by but be convincing in a foreign language but it takes a hell of a lot of work to get there it's it's a really long process and we can't expect students to want to get there without showing them how good it can be along the way showing them the brilliant things that languages uh, mean and the brilliant experiences and languages can give us that actually have to happen kind of before you get to that near native uh, fluency and that goes back to what i was saying uh, in our previous podcast about a balanced curriculum which gives students exposure to all sorts of things that they might fall in love with and which might convince them to make that kind of investment which is necessary to get to that 
um, that golden moment of uh, being mistaken for a native speaker, one which we all cherish as linguists. I think that's a really valid point because we're giving speaking experiences along the way, but they just, you know, they're not lighting up passion, like being able to say, you know, on Saturday, I used to eat crisps or something, um, you know, or I take the car because it is, you know, the quickest method of transport or whatever, you know, you might be saying, it doesn't feel like it has a purpose. It's, you know, um, when I was chatting to Michael Rosen, we were talking about the kids doing writing in English and literacy and you know what do they actually want to say I think it's a really important thing that we're, we're helping them to express something about themselves rather than it just being you know parroting back some you know stock phrases and like my example of my French pen friend who came over and got a worse exam result in this classroom test than me he actually said something idiomatically French and that didn't get a mark in our exam je suis en train de faire something is you know far more idiomatic perhaps than you know je fais and I was only being tested on je fais so therefore I got the mark and he didn't but he you know does that make sense he like he actually did say something that a French person would say <laughs> that's that's um that still happens today um and you could have a, a native speaker with uh, with perfect um grammar actually who could score quite poorly in the in the speaking test because they perhaps don't give enough opinions even though the question is something like um what's your favorite subject they might say my favorite subject is um geography and not then extend their answer into three or four subclauses with three tenses or whatever it might be. So there, there are all sorts of perverse things which the mark scheme requires students to do that actually an authentic conversation wouldn't involve. And of course, students see right through this. They might be enthusiastically kind of parroting it back in our mock exams, but they're doing that because they want the grade. They're not doing that because they're falling in love with the subject and they think that what they're doing is a brilliant enterprise. Mm. Um, and I think interesting to hear Michael Rosen's uh, remark there about saying something meaningful for the self I think um, about oneself sorry I, I would challenge that slightly if I may and I think that um, we we can't when we're learning a foreign language I, I, I kind of don't like the word foreign but let's just use it now when we're learning another language let's say um, it's it's not actually clear why I'd want to use that language to talk about myself I can if I want to talk about myself I'll do that in my own language actually and because I'm always going to be better at talking in my native language than in my second language so I think particularly where what we're saying to our students is hey guys we're going to teach you German which is a relatively relatively minor international language spoken in one part of Central Europe well I, I do think we have to try harder through the curriculum than just help them say things that they already want to say the curriculum for me has to open up new worlds so that they realize they've got more to say about the world, about themselves, but also about other people and other places than they had realized before they started learning German. That's, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking German because it's the, it's the language which is most in, in decline and, and in, in the most sorry state and also the one, that, one of the ones that I teach. So for me, yes, I mean, certainly the case that we have to help students say things which are meaningful to them, but they don't have to be about them they might also be about the german imagination the german speaking world german speakers past present and future and actually that's what's brilliant i think about a, a curriculum which is situated in the target language culture it doesn't matter if i've got nothing personally to say about the issue of i don't know it might be a social issue like uh, homelessness in in cities 
perhaps I live in a city where homelessness isn't a problem or perhaps it's not something that I particularly find I want to have a personal opinion on but if I'm learning about it this will be at my advanced level not really a GCSE but if I'm learning about it as a problem within the German-speaking world and I've been reading about it through the German language and about its implications for the German-speaking world then I've got all sorts of content that I can bring to the table and I've suddenly got something to say again. I think that applies at GCSE as well uh, in for example um, you know, some students find it very difficult to describe, you know, classic question, describe your family. Well, A, that can be a very personal, quite painful question. We, you know, we uncover all sorts of um, difficult family structures and, and family lives. And I don't really like asking that question. But I do want students to be able to use beautiful, expressive words and structures to be able to describe a person. So why don't we have the, have a curriculum which encourages students to describe a character or a person either which has been significant or interesting um, in history or in the present day, or which is a, a, a character which is a product of the cultural imagination of that language. For example, a character in a book or a film or a poem or a, a play or a painting, whatever it might be. And then I'm not actually asking that student to mediate their, uh, their response in languages through their own lived experience. I use this slightly clumsy and controversial analogy here, which is the way that we ask students to constantly talk about themselves in languages is a bit like asking a history student to talk about the past by referring to the antiques in their living room. Now, of course, not every child has antiques in their living room. And also it's a bit of a bizarre way to talk about world history. Why would I talk about things in my own life when I could be talking about things beyond my personal horizon? Languages is about otherness and about going beyond the self, going beyond our shores. So surely we should be really giving students a rich experience of what it means to be a French speaker, German speaker, Spanish speaker, etc. in the modern world. And, and we can, and I think need to do that through, um, through throughout the curriculum, including at GCSE level, we don't have to wait until A level. There's this um, peculiar phenomenon whereby language learning up to age 16 is purely about communicative, communicative capacity. And then suddenly at A level, it becomes being about um, understanding target language culture and engaging with target language culture, writing about books and films. And, and at university, it becomes more about that. And it also becomes about linguistics in many courses. But there's nothing to suggest that that exists lower down the curriculum. One of the debates that's been happening recently about the potential removal of the speaking component as we currently know it from the GCSE uh, will be that it leaves students very poorly prepared for A-level. I think that's a very valid point to make. But our GCSE is already highly inconsistent with A-level and it doesn't prepare students for A-level in terms of the, uh, the amount of cultural learning that they're expected to do. Cultural learning, which in my experience, by the way, they really, really enjoy. So it is bizarre that we have this uh, kind of jolt at age 16 when suddenly we have to talk about um, the French-speaking world. I think we should do that all the way through. But just to play devil's advocate for a second, if we involve a lot more of, you know, this kind of rich content, uh, whether it's cultural or, you know, experiential or whatever, does that not make it more difficult? Yeah, crucial question. And of course, we can't afford language for languages to be perceived as even more difficult. But I, I think my response to that is I don't think the GCSE as it is with its kind of um, slightly juvenile and superficial content, I don't think it's easy. I think it's linguistically relatively undemanding in terms of the productive skills, although the uh, reading and listening are quite tortuous. But I think it's uh, I think it's intellectually pretty vacuous, um, but it's actually very hard. 
And the reason that it's hard is because we're constantly asking kids to have spontaneous opinions on things they don't care about or have never done. And we're asking them to write really unnatural texts and do so with complex grammar, despite the content of those texts being utterly banal. So, you know, if I said to you, tell me about your last holiday, Kate, you might say, well, I went to Italy. Yeah, it was nice. It was cool. But in languages, we're expecting them to kind of narrate this whole 150 word account of their holiday and what they would have done if they had not gone on that holiday and what holiday they would do if they were rich and all this kind of stuff, which is not a natural thing to write. Writing anything unnatural is hard in any language. It's actually quite interesting um, giving students those uh, GCSE questions in English. They don't necessarily find them that easy because what they're writing is highly, highly contrived and highly, highly stilted. Of course, we can train them to answer these questions, which is what we have to do. It's what also I have to do and what I do do so that students don't get stuck with this idea of not knowing what to say. But that takes away valuable time from the actual act of language learning. And also what they're thinking in the back of their head is, what the hell am I doing here? So I don't think that the current GCSE through its really contrived nature is actually easy at all. And moving it um, into a position where actually students would be able to articulate things which are more natural things to say and write would actually in some ways make it more accessible also for the reasons which we talked about earlier in terms of not restricting content to the people's lived experience which many students don't have uh, the other thing i would also add there is that this idea that sort of functional practical language is easy is a bit of a misnomer some of that kind of practical french that we ask students to learn is actually highly idiomatic and highly difficult to learn because it's 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 kind of word for word very far from english and we use very we use very um <clears throat> idiomatic and flexible structures to do some of the transactional things that we expect students to do uh, in modern languages so there's this idea that just because the topics are intellectually straightforward makes them linguistically easy which i don't think um stands up to scrutiny um, and what we've also seen through some work by the National Centre of Excellence for Language Pedagogy is that the words which we do teach them on the GCSE vocab list are not the same as the most frequent or common words. So the idea that these, these topics introduce students to the kind of words they might encounter if they do have the privilege of travelling is also, um, um, it doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't withstand scrutiny. I was chatting to a, um, an academic called James Milton recently, who's really interesting on, on languages. Um, and his um, research suggests that the reason that, find, that, that, that students find languages difficult and find they can't say anything is not because we're introducing too much in our curriculum, but the opposite, that we're not actually giving students enough, that we're giving them the same words and the same topics again and again and again and again, and they're being hampered by their very limited vocabulary. And that's quite interesting because the received wisdom at the moment is that we should reduce the amount of words, if you like, that, or phrases or chunks, whatever you want to call it, that we introduce in lessons so that they learn them better. Now, Milton interprets this in a different way. He looks at the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve, which many listeners may be um, familiar with. It's certainly um, doing the rounds these days in this kind of age of retrieval practice. Now, classically, we look at that curve and it tells us what we need to do is teach the same thing again and again and again, so that each time that we test or retrieve, we re retain a higher amount of it. Now, he put that, um, that 
graph in a different light for me. He said, well, actually, the other way you can interpret this, and I'm not a, um, a, an expert in neuroscience, I'm going to hold my hands up here, and I'm not landing neither side of this debate. All I really want to, to say is that there is a debate to be had and things are not quite clear cut. What he said was, well, what Ebbinghaus, the, the rest of his work, and including that forgetting the curve shows us, is that students don't remember everything that we teach them. They will generally remember about half of all the stuff that they are expected or asked to learn. Therefore, if you want to teach students a thousand words-ish, which is what GCSE has always been, then you need to teach them at least 2,000. So there is a debate to be had about whether actually making curriculum richer and in some ways more demanding actually would a make things a bit fairer for those um, who come from less privileged backgrounds, would give things more purpose and make them less kind of contrived and banal and would also actually help them learn in the first place. And um, there are no, I'm not offering answers to any of those questions, but I'm just, if you like, proposing them as parameters for debate. I think that's absolutely a brilliant opener for debate. And hopefully we can carry on this debate on Twitter and really get the conversation going, because I think it's really worth having this conversation. Um, it's also worth, I think, saying at this point that, you know, we are both completely passionate language teachers and, you know, obsessive about how wonderful it is and, you know, passing that passion on to the next generation of linguists is really really important to us so yes you know we're critiquing what is the existing system but that's because we know it can be better and I think we're both incredibly sad aren't we that languages are in decline to the extent that you know 10 universities have closed their modern languages departments and you know fewer than half of children are opting for GCSE languages so just to yeah. make it just to make it really clear that you know it's an exciting process and we're you know really engaging with this conversation just let's let's have this conversation teachers linguists you know people who are interested from the the edges of linguistic experience uh, the teenagers themselves what do you want to be learning you know how how can we light the subject up in the way that it has been lit up for us me as a francophile and later italian and portuguese and, and in you with your German and French. And, and that's actually a very natural thing uh, for subjects to do. Subjects have always changed. History has changed since uh, I was at school and it had also already changed since um, when my parents were at school. So gone had gone the days when I was at school of history being about uh, learning a bunch of dates and a bunch of facts. When I was at school it was a bit more uh, discursive and now today when I look at history schemes of work and curriculum um, design, I can see it's changed again. It's a very natural thing to do for a subject to, inv to evolve and that's what I propose we need to do in MFL, perhaps with a little bit of catch-up so it needs to be a revolution rather than an evolution, but you know I'm, I'm okay with that. And yeah, you're absolutely right, there, there is nothing that I am more passionate about than languages. To be clear, I believe in universal language education throughout secondary school um, and the reason that I, I, I do all this is I, I look at the community um, where I learn languages and see that languages have basically disappeared. It's gone. Um, so uh, if I were growing up in, in that uh, uh, there um, now, I wouldn't be learning those languages that I did learn and I wouldn't be who, the person I am now. Um, you can like me or not, but you know I'm, I'm glad that I learned languages. Um, I think also this idea that um, in Britain we're uniquely unable to learn languages is just bizarre there's nothing about our genetic makeup which makes us less able to be linguists than anybody else we are all as human beings 
a highly, highly skilled linguist. I'm reading a brilliant book, which tells me about that by David Adger at the moment, talking about kind of the inbuilt, intuitive, um, nature-given linguistic um, quite phenomenal abilities that we all have and, and no less um, so is that the case of, of British students and I'm interested also looking again at Ireland another English-speaking country not just English-speaking but English is one of the languages um, of Ireland and how actually it is possible to have a healthier um, attitude and uptake of, of modern languages despite being a broadly English-speaking country uh, in, in Northern Europe. Um, so yeah, I, my, my commitment to languages is, is is absolute. I came into the profession with one goal, which was that by the time I leave the profession, whenever that will be, we will have language numbers growing, or the number of students studying languages growing and growing at a sustainable pace and growing significantly. Um, I won't retire until um, until that happens. So to sum up, if you could change one thing about how we approach languages education today. What would it be? I'm afraid I can't choose one thing, Kate, um, but I will choose the first thing. And that's that we really have to have a grown up conversation about why we're doing it. What is it that we think enables languages to earn its place on the curriculum? I'm absolutely categorically clear that it's very easy to make that case. But once we've worked out why it is that we think students should learn a language and, and kind of reminded ourselves of the amazing value that this gives us, then we can start a kind of um, uh, what then becomes an easier conversation about designing a curriculum which delivers that and delivers that value and then reforming exams etc etc and curriculum that suits um, those curriculum outcomes so but really it has to be let's think about what is the point here and what are we seeking to achieve and if there was a queue for people lining up to talk about the amazing value that languages can have in 20th century 21st century britain sorry then i'll be at the front of the queue Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. If people would like to follow you, they can look at Transform MFL on Twitter. And is that your website as well? Yeah, it's transformmfl.com. Yeah, it's a, it's a fairly unexciting blog, but there's some fun stuff on there that you can use in the classroom and to get you thinking. And I, I use it as a space to challenge myself um, and uh, to open conversation with others. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've really enjoyed the conversation uh, and look forward to talking further one day. Indeed, and vive la révolution. Vive la révolution, c'est ça. Merci. Die Hoffnung stirbt zuletzt, I'm going to say that as well. Um, that's kind of sums up my attitude to languages. I'm really hopeful, I'm really excited about the future of languages. So yeah, die Hoffnung stirbt zuletzt. Well, I'm really excited about it too. Now I've spoken to you, I feel like we can, I think there are enough people out there that are calling for change and to have this conversation. So let's have the conversation. Cheers, Kate.